Last week, we saw the secret servant from the song that was written for us in Isaiah 42. And we read these verses from that, from Isaiah 42. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name. A secret mystery. The Lord would give the Messiah as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, opening the eyes of the blind and setting prisoners free. The prophet Isaiah has powerfully portrayed the greatness of Israel's sovereign Lord. If you read the whole book of, of Isaiah, you'll get this feeling that God is awesome. He's sovereign. He's mighty. In power, the Holy One of Israel will come to blot out all injustice, he said. will judge the earth, earth. He will be welcomed by Israel. He will exercise his kingly power, fulfill the covenant and the promises win the alliance of all of mankind. But suddenly, Isaiah takes a different theme. The king will be a servant. And a servant, he will be obedient. He will not raise his voice. Will be rejected by Israel. He will suffer injustice. He will become the covenant. And he will be mocked and spit upon and at the climax of all of these revelation is a very explicit picture of Isaiah 53, the servant's substitutional death for all of us. So can you imagine the readers of Isaiah when Jesus is walking the earth? The contrast between Isaiah's two images, the sovereign Lord acting in power and his image of a servant suffering for others. It was puzzling for those Old Testament saints and those people of Jesus' day. You know what? And some of us are still puzzled over how this is all going to work. We think we know, but there's a lot of discussion about it, a lot of verses on it, and we'll see what happens. So we remember from our teaching last week that these sections from chapter 40 to 66 is sometimes called the New Testament of Isaiah. 27 chapters like the 27 books of the New Testament. It begins with John the Baptist in chapter 40, verses, um, verse 3, where it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. A quote that Matthew picks up and quotes about John the Baptist. It emphasizes Christ brings salvation and redemption. In Jesus, we understand the unity of these two different pictures. Jesus suffered, but he is going to return in glory, and Isaiah's prophecies will be fulfilled. In Isaiah's vision of the suffering servant that we're going to be looking at tonight, we actually see our Lord more clearly. And I think if we understand his role as a servant, we'll better understand our role today. Or, as we heard last week, follow the servant was one of the things that Pastor Brandon pointed out to us. So this week we are looking at the second song from Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 7. Let's read them. I'll read them, you follow along, because we probably have different translations. 
chapter 49, verse 1. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you people, from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me, and made me as a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me. And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord, and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the, per the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nations abhor, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. First, one more thought from last week's study. The first words in this song that we've looked at last week, and so therefore the first week of the four songs is, Behold my servant. Jesus isn't just a servant. He is the servant. Everyone should behold, as the Lord says, my servant. When we see that term behold, it means this is important. And so Isaiah is pointing out, behold, my servant. This is Jehovah's servant. This is the servant of God. Servant is not a demeaning term in Isaiah's day or in the days of the Old Testament writers. It's actually a very important term. Serves an important function for the person that he serves. So it was a position, actually, of honor. What the servant does is truly significant. At first, that title seems out of place when we're talking about the Messiah, we're talking about Jesus. But among the titles that this little section that we read ends up with, we see terms like the Holy One, the Redeemer, the Sovereign Lord, and the Everlasting God. Now, doesn't that sound better when we're talking about Jesus? The Holy One, the Redeemer, the Everlasting Lord. Wouldn't it be better to talk about that than servant? They're so much more appropriate to what we think of with Jesus. Yet servant may more fully display the glory and the wonder of God and who he is. The title is the one that Jesus chose for himself. He lived out that lifestyle before his disciples, and he asked them to adopt it. Remember when the disciples were hungry for recognition? They wanted to enjoy the splendor of all that was going on around them. In Matthew 20, they were arguing over who would be the greatest. Jesus called them together and he said to them, said this to them, 
You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, that's, that was an interesting conversation that he had, but he had it again in a different situation in Mark 9. They have traveled to Capernaum, and they entered a house, and he asked them, what were you guys talking about, and what were you disputing about, arguing about as we were walking towards the city? And they said, honestly, we wanted to know which one of us was going to be the greatest. And this is what he said to them that time. And he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone desires to be first... He shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. So again, Jesus is talking about being a servant, and he's talking to his disciples about their role as servants. Certainly something for us all to pick up is how in the world can we serve one another? What can we do to better serve one another and thereby glorify God? Peter, in his first sermon in Acts chapter 3, said it like this, The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Isaiah, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. So Peter carries that theme on, that Jesus was a servant. And that passage that we all like so much in Philippians 2, and I'll read it again. Pastor Brandon read it last week, and I'll read it again, because it's so... Uh, important for us to understand exactly what Jesus was and to us as a servant. So Philippians chapter 2, the first um, 11 verses. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if there is any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any aff- uh, affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each look of you look out not only for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking on the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in, a, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those of earth and of those under the earth, And they, every tongue, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Being a servant is so important 
that Jesus mentioned it to his disciples, his disciples preached it, and Paul wrote about it in, in, in a message out to the Philippians. It has to be done that way. I think the one thing when I think about Patmos, and I talk to, to Pastor Chet some of the times, is you guys don't know where you're going from day to day. One day you're staying over here in the dorms. The next day you're staying down in a Sunday school room at a church. The next day you're on a bus going somewhere else. And that's being a servant because that's the atmosphere that Patmos is trying to raise up is people who will be servants. And I think that's so important for us in a church that we learn to do those things. So these passages that I read you from the New Testament, from the book of Acts, from from Paul's letter to the Philippians, And Isaiah's prophecy here in this song give us several distinctive impressions of what the servant is. His desire was to serve God. His stance before men was one of humility. His mission was to bring others to deliverance. His servanthood involved great personal suffering, and his strength came from God who upheld him through his mission. Have you ever done anything that you just didn't want to do? You know, somebody scheduled something on Saturday morning, your only day to sleep in, and that's the day you had to get up and go do something that was a good thing to do, something for maybe a family member, maybe somebody that you, you love, but it's Saturday and I got a busy Sunday coming, and next week's really busy, and I was really looking forward to just maybe not even getting out of my pajamas today, but just really having a day for just me. Have you ever had one of those days where you've had to go out and do something that you just really didn't want to do? His servanthood involved great personal suffering, okay? Those are things that we have to understand. But his strength came from God who upheld him through the whole mission. Remember that Jesus was constantly saying, I must be about my father's business. I set my face to go to Jerusalem. I must complete what the Lord has sent me to do. So in this passage, chapter 49, verse 1, we see his his mission. He says, listen and give attention. And the Bible is so clear when it gives words like that. It says, listen, pay attention to this. Listen Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples, from afar. The word, the coastland there means the world of the Gentiles. So even though this was written to Jews, he's also addressing it to the Gentiles. It says from his mother's womb there in, in, uh, in that first verse, and from Micah we know that from you, Bethlehem, though you're a little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler of Israel, who's going forth from old and from everlasting. You know, if those of you who are reading the New King James, it says matrix um, for the, what talks about in, inward parts. I think New American Standard and ESV translated body, but it's like from your gut. So this is coming from in who you are. And this was fulfilled in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 33, that when the Lord was sent the message through uh, the angel Gabriel, declared the name of Jesus to Mary about the baby that she was going to conceive in her womb. Amazing that God was in control of the whole situation from the very beginning. And then in verse 2 it says, you'll have a mouth like a sharp sword. You know, the very words of the Messiah had power and authority. 
Jesus' words were very, very powerful. Some might use a weapon, but Jesus would use his words. And you remember the scene in the garden uh, or yeah, when he was arrested and Peter pulls out his sword and he's going to chop, he's going to fight, he's going to do all this kind of stuff. And Jesus just says, I am. Are you him? He says, I am. And they all fall backwards. He just used his words. And that's exactly what this was talking about. Some would try to use a weapon, but the words of Christ are so important. That's why it's so important for us to know those words, to know what Jesus meant when he said things, and to be able to apply that. It's interesting, this, this concept about, in verse 2, I made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hands he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft in the quiver of, uh, in, the, in his quiver in his, is, he has hidden me. Well, the quiver is where you would keep your arrows, and the shaft is a shaft. And you always want that to be really... Uh, finely balanced, and you want it to be sanded down, you want it to be varnished, and all those different things. You want it to be really perfect. It's almost like it's been hidden in there. Could this be speaking of the years when Jesus was in Egypt and when he was at Nazareth, before he started his ministry, that he was ready and prepared for God to use him at any time, and he would be pulled out of that, and he would be ready to be used. Like an arrow, ready, polished in the archer's quiver. In verse 3, he says, you are my servant Oh, Israel. Now, he seems like he's changing it here and talking about the nation. Why would he do that? He said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. It's obvious from the rest of the chapter and the rest of this text that when they're talking about this, they're talking about the Messiah. Number one, the Messiah comes from Israel. So this is a reference of the national Israel from which the Messiah will come. And two, Messiah fulfills the meaning of the name of Israel. Remember, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and Israel means governed by God. And so that's what this is talking about. Israel has not glorified the Lord, but Jesus did. And so we know that this is talking about Jesus. In verse 4, he comes back to talking about the Messiah Then I also have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. In vain. When we consider this, we know that Isaiah, what Isaiah was saying. When we look at these verses. In John chapter 1, verse 11, we read, He came to his own and his own did not receive him. In Luke 19, 14, we read, But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man reign over us. And then, of course, what we read, read in Isaiah 53, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and a root out of the dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So back to verse 4, it says, Then I said, I have labored in vain. When we considered what Jesus what Jesus had and who he had to work with, 
on this earth, we certainly must believe that one of the greatest temptations of our Lord was to become discouraged. These passages show that even in ministering, it's difficult sometimes and discouraging. It's in difficult and, and uh, discouraging circumstances. He never gave in to discouragement. Now, he's a servant. We're supposed to be servants. And have you ever gotten discouraged in your service to the Lord? How about just in just discouraged, period? How about just in your ministry to your family? How about discouraged with the relationships at work? How about discouraged just with um, everything that's going on in the world today? He always put his trust in the Lord. And when it was all over, and Peter called the group together to pick the new disciple, he called the disciples together. It wasn't just the 12. How many were there? 120. Three and a half years of ministry. We've got to replace one of our own. Let's get everybody together, not just the 12, but let's get them all together. 120? Man, that would be discouraging to look at it that way. But ultimately, God will do justly and will, re 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 and will reward the Messiah's work that was done. Even though he was despised and he was rejected as he was. Today, we, the church, are actually his reward. He actually rejoices over us. And as new people come into the church, as the church grows and strengthens, he's happy with us. In verses 5 to 7, it talks about how the Messiah will bless Israel and all the nations. And now the Lord says, who forms me from the womb to his servant to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. In verse 5, it's to bring Jacob or Israel back to the Lord, to gather the nation back together. We know that ethnic Israel has a very special place in the heart of the Lord and, it's, and in his plan. We know that Israel still has a great place in God's plan. There's lots of verses that talk about it. There's lots of theologians that talk about it too. We're not all quite sure, but we know there is a place for Israel in his plan. And so I think we'll just have to wait and see how that's going to play out. But he says there at the end, uh, second part of, um, of verse 5, about his work that's going on. Because he is glorious in his eyes of the Lord. You know that the servant of the Lord, Jesus, the Messiah, the seeking servant, the saving servant, the secret servant that we looked at last week, the servant that we're talking about for four weeks who came in what we call Christmas, this servant, this servant's work will be glorified, not because of what it was, but because of who called him and whose father he is. He says there in the second half of verse 5, for I, shall be, so, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And that's so true for us today. Whatever work we're doing for the Lord, we may not always pull it off perfect. We may make mistakes. It may not be what we want it to be. But you know that because we're glorious in the sight of the Lord, it's a good thing. It'll work out. So in verse 6, he says, It's a small thing that you will be my servant to raise up Jacob and restore Israel. 
but I also will give you as a light to the Gentiles and thus salvation to the ends of the whole world. No, Israel already had the light. It had the word of God. Jesus came to them. They needed salvation. But the Gentiles needed the light. They needed the word. And they needed salvation. And this was the beginning of opening that up. In verse 7, the Lord says, To the one that men despise, to the one that the nations abhor, prophecy of the rejection of the Messiah by, making, by mankind in general and by Israel specifically. We know that Jesus came and that he suffered and that he was rejected by Israel and by the nation. But we know that he also came to the other people and they, they also rejected him. And mankind has continued to reject him. And then it says he will be the servant of rulers. Well, wait a minute. I thought God was sovereign and in charge of everything. How is he going to be the servant of rulers? He would not use his power against any earthly ruler. Remember when Peter asked about the taxes in Matthew 17? Jesus said, nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take up the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money that go and give it to them for you and for me. And so he paid taxes. He went along with what they were looking for. And remember when, we, when they came to arrest Jesus, talked about that for a second, Jesus said to them, put away your sword, put it back in its place. There's no need for that. For all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot pray for my Father and he will send 12 legions of angels? So the Lord did not use that. He was a servant of the leaders, as this song from Isaiah tells us. King shall see and rise, princes also shall worship. In the end, the Messiah will not be uh, despised and abhorred. He will receive the worship and honor he deserves. Why? Because he is the chosen of the Lord. He is the chosen one to receive it. In 2 Corinthians, we read, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So we have seen that God's servant, the Messiah, Jesus, the secret servant from last week, the seeking and saving servant from this week, the strong servant from next week that you're, that you're going to need to look at, and then the suffering servant in the last week. Four songs. How many of you have discovered how many verses those four songs take up? I'm sure in your reading you had time to do that. We're going to study four songs. We laid them out for you. We studied one. Now we're studying two. and There's two more to come. Any of you curious to... Wow, this is a taxing assignment those pastors are giving us. They're asking us to read four songs. They're asking for us to consider these songs during Advent. Four songs? Four whole songs? Forty verses. Forty verses. Have any of you taken the time to sit down and put the four songs, read them together? Just read them. Don't try to figure them out. 
Don't try to dissect every word that's in there. Just take these four songs and read them. If you need the verses again, they're in the bulletin. Psalms 42, 49, Psalms, um, I mean Isaiah, excuse me, Isaiah uh, 42, 49, Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 52. Four songs of the Advent. I think it's a great study. It'd be a great read. There are 40 verses, by the way, in case you haven't had time to figure it out. I think it'd be a challenge to read it over every day this week and come prepared to talk about the servant that is strong next week. So how do we see this? How do we respond to this? What we know about Jesus' mission and what it was during Advent number one. We see that he came as a servant to seek and to save the lost. Didn't Jesus say that in Luke 19? I've come to seek and to save the lost. As a servant, that's what he did. You remember the story. He was going to dinner at Zacchaeus' house. He was going to go to dinner uh, with this guy who was very rich and a tax collector. He was going to be the guest at this dinner, a dinner with a table full of sinners. People didn't like that. They were, they were troubled by that. In Luke 15, Jesus uses a series of parables to discuss how they are. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Jesus was ministering to society's outcasts, tax collectors whom everybody hated. They hated these guys. And sinners who they weren't allowed to be around. Sinners were those who did not obey the legal rules of the Pharisees or the religious leaders. So tax collectors and sinners, and Jesus wants to go be with them. Jesus freely mingled with the, such people. He did not despise them as others did. He did not despise them as they despised him. He loved them. So I guess I could ask you the question, how's your mingling who are you mingling with? Are you mingling with the least, the last, and the lost? Are you out there rubbing shoulders with them and saying, how can we minister to you? How can we stretch our arms out to you? How can we love you in a real, real way? In um, Luke 15, let me read you the first three verses of that uh, chapter where he talks about the lost sheep and the lost coin. And the lost son. He says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, and then he's going to go into those three parables. So if Jesus is a servant, he told his disciples to be, a, to ser to be servants. Peter preached about being a servant. Paul wrote about being a servant. We're supposed to be servants. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him. Are they lining up at your door? Or have we gotten ourselves into this little purity group that we love to hang out with? We love to fellowship with each other, don't we? Aren't we all friends and 
we're cool and, and we know what we're going to get. You know, we can kind of expect everybody's going to talk nice and nobody's going to say bad words and we're not going to be challenged with some um, modern thought thing that's going to provoke us and make us go and that kind of stuff. Or are we out there mixing with the people, the people that aren't sitting here in our church, that aren't sitting here with us at dinner? Are we, are we out there really interacting with them? That's what I think the call is. That's what we're looking at with, these, with, the, with this idea of the seeking, saving servant. Now, we can't save anyone. That's up to God. That's his Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit will draw them. The Holy Spirit will take care of that. But we can seek. We can seek the least, the last, and the lost. We can go out there and we can just be aware sometimes. Sometimes we just have to open up our eyes and see what we can do to minister to people. So Jesus was ministering to society's outcasts. He freely mingled with them, and I think we should. So in verse 2, it said, the man received sinners and eats with them. And this was really a slur on who Jesus was. This was a, the religious leaders were despising him, and they were putting him down. But in all these three stories, these three parables, I think they tell us of the loving character of God. In all three, we see that something was lost. A, a, sheep, a, she, a sheep, a coin, and a son. But you know what? All three lost things remain valuable to the owner of who they were. Even though it was lost. Even though the owner didn't have possession of it, it was still something that he was concerned about. It was valuable to him. And sometimes we look at these, these uh, parables and we think of them about trying to explain the lost son, the lost sheep, and the lost coin. But often we don't consider it from God's point of view. The lostness of the sinner. Those in our families who are lost, God loves them. He knows they're lost. He cares for them. We can think of the misery of the lost sheep. You know, the 99, they're all pretty, pretty happy. They're warm. They're toasty. They feel safe. They're, they're probably even playing around a little bit. But that one that's out there by himself, he's having a rough time. The hopeless condition of the lost coin. There's nothing the coin can do to help itself. It's just laying wherever it's laying. But the owner is seeking it. That coin is valuable to that owner. She gets all excited and tells everybody, I found my coin that was lost. And the degradation of the lost son, in there with the pigs, in there at a place where he'd spent all his money, lost everything. But to the father, he was still cared for, he was still loved, and he was still valuable. So Jesus' focus it wasn't on those objects that were lost, but with the loss sustained by God. Things were lost that God wanted in his kingdom. In this parables, we see the feelings of God towards the sinner. He is caring about each one of us. He's caring about all of the lost in those parables. And he will go to great effort to find them and to regain them. He is a servant who is seeking the lost. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah compares the sinners to lost sheep. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah goes on to show God has sought us out even in our lost condition. Jesus became like us, a lamb being led to the slaughter, a sheep silent before the shearers in order to find us and to restore us. So as we consider the first advent of our Lord, Christmas, this Christmas, as we sing these four songs, or read them, okay, read them, four songs, um, not hard to do, remember the secret servant from last week, Isaiah 42, the seeking and the saving servant from Isaiah 49. Read with anticipation about the strong servant from Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 11. Or consider to read them all again and again this week. Not much. But much for us to consider as we recognize what the Father asked the Son to do for us. He said, son, I want you to be a servant. I want you to be my servant. Remember, the servant was somebody who was important. The servant was someone who went and did tasks that were valuable and meaningful. I want you to be my servant. I want you to go seek and to save the lost. And that Jesus asked us with this verse. He said, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my Father will honor him. Let's be servants of the Lord. Let's be seeking servants. Let's bring people to a place to where they understand the question. We want to be serving the Lord as the Lord served his Father. Let's pray.